Morning. How's everybody doing? All right. Ready for uh, to get back in Romans? A few of you. All right. All right. Well, hey, before you get into Romans, um, I wanted to show a dollar bill up here. You know, I was pulling out this dollar bill uh, the other day and I was kind of studying it because I was I was uh, just curious about the, some of the language on our on our dollar bill. And as you look at a dollar bill, you may not have looked at one for a while. Maybe you use your credit card or your debit card all the time. But uh, there's one one little citation in the top eh, left corner there of the dollar bill. And this is what it reads. It says this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. This note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. You know, when you think about a dollar bill, really, it's, it's a piece of paper, you know. And, and uh, when we see any other pieces of paper, we, you know, sometimes we use them, sometimes we write on them, sometimes we throw them away. But there's a reason why we don't throw this away. And the reason we don't throw this piece of paper away is because it means something. Or at least it does for the next few days. Okay. Nobody got that. It means something. There's something behind this piece of paper that isn't behind other pieces of paper. There's something behind this piece of paper that other pieces of paper doesn't have. And what is that? It is that this piece of paper represents for our nation and for the world, it represents value. It represents something that when it's used, it can be used for all debts, public and private. We don't throw away this piece of paper because it stands for something. It's worth something. Today, the title of my message is We Are Christians, and that means something. We're Christians, and that means something. As brothers and sisters in the Lord, there is something that is behind us. There is something that is in us. There is something that is innate to us that means something. We're not just disposable. We're not just regular people. We're not just someone who you walk by on the street and you think, well, okay, you know, I don't know who that is. No, a Christian is someone who stands for something greater than themselves. Namely, a Christian is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, a Christian means something. And as we live our Christian life, we need to realize that we're not just living for ourselves. We are living on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there needs to be honor in the way that we conduct ourselves. There needs to be purity in the way that we conduct ourselves. There needs to be righteousness in the way that we conduct our lives. We're in a particular spot in Romans uh, that is unique. Where are we in the book of Romans, we might ask? Okay, here, here's something that will 
kind of give you an idea of where we're at. We're at a unique spot in the book of Romans. We're starting in, uh, we've been in chapter 12 now for some time. And from 12 to 15, you've got what I would call honorable Christian living. In chapter 12, Paul zeroes in on the topic of individual Christian ethics. Let's go ahead and pull that up here. Here it comes. Individual Christian ethics. So this is primarily the focus of chapter 12. He's going to be talking about how you can be right before God as you live in the world. And then in chapter 13, we're going to learn in, in uh, starting next week, we're going to learn about societal ethics, how you can be in good, in good right standing with the, the government and with society as God would have you live. And then finally, chapters 14 and 15, we'll talk about church ethics and how a Christian is to interact among brothers and sisters. And we, we kind of chapters 12 and 14 and 15 somewhat coincide as well. So that's where we are in the book of Romans today. But for us in particular, we're zeroing in on verses 9 to 19, 9 to 9, or 9 to 21, excuse me, of chapter 12. And as we zero in on chapter 12, verses 9 to 21, we're going to be asking three questions, three questions. And they're on your outline today. The first question is, how can I how do I conduct myself before God? And the second question, how do I conduct myself before others? And thirdly, how am I to conduct myself before my enemies? And so these are three questions that Paul will be asking, uh, asking us to consider here this morning as we open to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 21. So if you have a Bible and if you don't grab one in the pew back in front of you, grab your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse nine. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We're going to be reading verses nine to twenty one in chapter 12 of Romans. Once again, Romans 12, verse nine through twenty one. Paul writes this. He says, let love Be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lacking in diligence, but fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, for in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see here this morning how you want us to live, God. We want to live 
honorably. Father, we want, we know that there is something within us that is greater than ourselves. And it is Your Spirit. And we want to live honorably as Your Spirit guides us. Honorably before You. Honorably before others. And honorably even before our enemies. God, open our eyes wider today that we might see Your truth and appropriate it to our hearts that we might live, might live by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul is, as you can probably tell from verses 9 to 21, Paul's taking kind of a shotgun approach at the Christian life. You know, a shotgun is one that as, it's, as, it's, as it comes out of the barrel, it spreads out wide. And so anybody, if you're a bad shot like me, as long as you're shooting a shotgun, you're probably going to hit the target. And Paul today is taking a shotgun approach to Christian conduct. He's going to say many, many things. Many, many things. But we are to see these various admonitions in three categories. How am I to conduct myself before God? How am I to conduct myself before others? And how am I to conduct myself before my enemies? So keep those three things in mind as we begin to walk through Romans chapter 12. Let's start in verse 9 again. Paul writes, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Now the word love here is the Greek word agape. And sure, many of you are familiar with it. The word agape in Greek is the highest form of love. It is unconditional love. It is love that has no limit. And so, of course, if we are to agape others, it is to be without hypocrisy. It is to be genuine. It is to be without conditions. Love, Paul says, and this can be really the theme of what he's about to say. Let love be without hypocrisy. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Unless we think that love is, is somehow merely a, a soft or, or a passive kind of activity on our part, Paul goes on to say, abhor what is evil. Hate what is evil. Uh, Zane Hodges wrote this. He says, true Christian love does not involve a softening of one's attitude toward evil. And I think that is very well said. We, lest we think that, that, that the Bible is, is all about love, love, love and, and passivity and softness. Paul's very strong here. He says, hate what is evil. And that, that, that simultaneously, that loving agape love and that hating what is evil is in harmony with each other. When we say the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner... That is not a contradictory phrase. We can hate evil and sin. We can shun it. We can abhor it. And at the same time, agape, love others. Cling to what is good, Paul writes. Cleave to it. Devote yourself to what is good. Verse 10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Now, this is unique here because in in verse nine, we saw agape love. And here in verse 10, we're seeing another kind of love. The words brotherly love behind me in verse 10 is uh, based on the Greek word uh, philos, 
which is a brotherly kind of love. In fact, the exact word used there in the Greek is Philadelphia, uh, from which we get the name of our great city uh, back on the East Coast. Brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia is originally a Greek word, and it has to do with that, uh, that, that brother-to-brother love, that brotherly love for one another. But interestingly, uh, the words kindly affectionate that proceed uh, at the begin verse 10, be kindly affectionate, that word also has to do with a familial kind of love. It's philostorgos in Greek. And it means that the storgos, the last part of it, literally means the love between a parent and a child. So Paul here is using a lot. I'm giving you all this Greek background to show you what Paul is saying. He's saying, like a parent to a child, show brotherly love to one another. Agape, verse 9. Agape one another. Like a parent to a child, show brotherly love to one another in honor, giving preference to one another. That uh, leading the way, leading the way in showing what is honorable, in doing what is honorable. Paul says, you be the leader, you lead the way in giving preference to another person. You take the initiative and show them preference Show them honor. These are some of the themes that will begin to now develop in the rest of these verses. How about our conduct toward God? Look at verse 11. Paul writes, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. He says, diligent, committed, to our duties, fervent in spirit. And that word fervent there is, is zealous. It actually means excited, enthusiastic. We often uh, speak, uh, I'm sure you've heard the term, you know, uh, uh, being on like a, a mountain high with the Lord. Okay, I, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm having an emotional high with the Lord. And sometimes we look at that and we think, well, that's, that's not altogether normal. That's not the norm. We're not to, we're not to stay in this enthusiastic, emotional state with the Lord were to be, you know, settled and resolved. But really, the word fervent in spirit there encourages us to be zealous people, to be enthusiastic people, to be excited people, excited in our spirit toward the Lord, serving the Lord as a as a servant, as his as his slave, but a slave of righteousness Excited, diligent, serving God, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, steadfast in prayer. You know, Paul has told us, read, read Romans 5. If you're ever discouraged, read Romans 5. Remember what he says there. That, that hardship, that tribulation, that, that struggle, it produces perseverance, strength. When we go through hardship, it produces perseverance, which produces character, which produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. And Paul's reiterating these themes here in verse 11 and 12. We must be patient in tribulation, knowing, knowing with firm resolve that this hardship, whatever we're dealing with now, will ultimately produce good things 
So we will continue in prayer and take joy knowing our hope will soon be realized. And while we battle, while we battle these tribulations, while we battle these hardships, may we not forget that there are others to our left and to our right who are battling struggles and hardships and tribulations just like us. And oftentimes, as we look around at others around us, we can point and say, yeah, they're probably going through more than I am right now. So we are to be very aware of what's happening around us. And that's what Paul gets to in verse 13. He says in verse 13 of chapter 12, he says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Paul says, hey, meet needs. Meet real needs. Find out what is lacking around you. Find out who has a need and meet it. Identify how it can be met. You know, it was not long ago that I was mentioning to an, an individual at this church uh, that someone uh, had a, a broken appliance. Um, this individual, had they, they, one of their appliances at home had, had broken and... Uh, you know, it was it was a, it was a hardship because it was not easy to replace for them at that time. And I made mention of that broken appliance to another individual in this church, uh, one who uh, would probably admit to you that they, they didn't have much of the means to help. But nevertheless, this person saw the need and did all they could to fulfill that need. And sure enough, within a few days, that need was met. Just did what they could. Found what they could to provide for the need and the need got met. Are you meeting real needs? When you know of someone who needs something, some sort of pick-me-up, maybe, uh, maybe some money, maybe a car to, to loan, maybe, I don't know what it might be, a broken appliance that they need fixing. Can, are, are you of the persuasion that you are going to actively look and, and try to help meet real needs? Paul says, distribute to the needs of the saints. Give. Collaborate with others. Find ways to meet real needs. And then give into hospitality. Let us not overlook this. these, these uh, three short words. Opening up our homes. When is the last time you opened up your home to another? Now, some of you might say, oh, well, hey, I live in an apartment or, or I, have, I have a very small place, Neil. You know what? I, I promise you that the people in Romans had much smaller homes than any of us do today. I promise you that. And yet the whole Christian church was given to hospitality. The size of your home matters not. It's the fact that your door needs to be open. We're Christians. And that means something. And as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, our door is to be open to others. Not just to Christians, but to the lost, to our neighbors, to those at work. Our door is always to be open to them. When was the last time you or your family had someone over for dinner? Maybe you say, well, I can't cook. Well, that's okay. Take them out to dinner. You know, uh, my family's cheap. We like Chick-fil-A. If you want to take us out to Chick-fil-A. Um, who else likes Chick-fil-A? Yes, good, good. 
See, some people are cheap like me. So you know, take them out to dinner if you, if you can't cook. But find ways to reach out and to say, hey, can I, can I minister to you? Can I, can I buy you a meal? Can I cook you a meal? Will you come over? Let's, let's talk. Find a family that you can minister to and do it. You'll be amazed at what one meal can do together. It can forge a friendship for a lifetime. And it may be precisely what that person needed. You know, not long ago, I, I was having dinner with, with a brother in the Lord. And uh, we, we had met because I could tell that, that uh, this person just needed some encouragement. And so I said, hey, let's, let's go out to dinner. I'd really like to, uh, we'd really like to just take you out to dinner. And so sure enough, I, this, this individual and I, we go out to dinner and we're sitting across the table from each other and, and we're having conversations about life and about family and about everything. And, uh, and I'm just, my heart is just wanting to support and wanting to encourage and, and trying to uplift this person. And I, I sit across the table and I, and I ask this person, I say, what can I do? to better support you? What can I do to better encourage you? Is there anything that I can do that will just pick you up? And you know what this person said to me? They thought about it for a moment and they looked up and they said, you're doing it. You're doing it. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? Just being across the table was enough for this person to know that I was there for him. That here to encourage, here to support. And I'm not saying this to toot my horn. I'm saying this because when you just show up, it can be enough. When you just bring them into your home, that can be just what they need. When you just take them out to lunch, take them out to dinner, when you buy them a coffee, and you say, how can I support you? They might come back to you and say, you're doing it. You're doing it. Given to hospitality. Up until now, we've been discussing how we ought to conduct ourselves before God and before others. But now things get a little tougher. Now Paul goes on uh, to speak about how we are to conduct ourselves with those who dislike us, with those who persecute us, even toward those who hate us. Take a look at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul writes this in, in chapter 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. How easy it is. How easy it is. To fight back at the one who is fighting with you. You know, it's, uh, it's human nature to want to defend ourselves, isn't it? It's human nature to want to defend our character and, and defend our honor and defend our good name, defend our reputation. And when we are persecuted or when we are maligned or when we feel slandered, it's easy to want to rise up and get a good jab in ourselves, isn't it? When we're persecuted or, 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 or called names or, 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 or our name is drugged through the mud, we want to rise up and we want to get back at the person who's done such things. 
And yet Paul writes elsewhere in in 1 Corinthians 4, he says this. He says, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we entreat. What What a difference in our response. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. Being defamed, we are people who entreat, who go out and who implore, who beseech the one who has defamed us and say, hey, can we talk? Can we talk about this? We don't rise up and and get in an extra jab. Jesus had uh, some, some precious words for us as well on this topic. He says in Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do that? Jesus is saying, humble yourself. Humble yourself. You can either get struck on the cheek and strike back, or you can turn the other cheek also. You can either escalate a situation, you can make a bad situation worse, or you can respond in love and in grace. Do we not know that we will break, we will break our enemies resolve to harm us by our humility and not by our aggression. We will break our enemies resolve to harm us by our humility and not by our aggression. There was a great uh, early 20th century American scientist Uh, named George Washington Carver. He was an African-American scientist and he had a great phrase. I want to share it with you. He said this, I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. Isn't that great? I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. George Washington Carver was a great Christian man and scientist. He understood the principle that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 5. He understands what Paul speaks of here in Romans 12.14. When you curse another for their curse on you, when you strike back at one who is struck at you, you will begin to to hate them. You'll begin to dislike them. You'll start going down a road and it'll start getting... The snowball will start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, you will be so consumed by the person that you hate that it will ruin your life. Jesus says, let it go. Let it go. Bless those who persecute you. Speak words of blessing about them. Bless and do not curse. More on this in just a moment. 
Now, Paul will will soon finish chapter 12 speaking about enemies. But first, he takes one more opportunity for this moment of humility to go back and to speak about our conduct with others. Notice what he says in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now, let's start at the end here. He says, don't think of yourself too highly. Don't be wise in your own opinion, but befriend all kinds of people. I was uh, I was in church the other day. I was working and, and I went to the restroom. And as I came out of the restroom, one of the uh, one of the uh, cleaning ladies was there. And I specifically we made eye contact, the cleaning lady and I, and I just kind of nodded and I walked right on by and I went back through the doors and into my office and commenced my sermon preparation. I thought to myself, you, you didn't you just didn't even acknowledge her. You just looked at her and, you know, kind of nodded and, and just walked right on by. I walked right on by that woman back in the foyer. It was just a few days ago. And I got back to my office and I thought, I will not do that again. I will not walk by that individual again without just pausing for a few moments and saying, hey, how you doing? How's how's life? Can I pray for you? Is there anything I can pray for you about? You see, friends, we, we, we walk by people or we think we have something better to do and we just kind of we just kind of walk on by. And it can happen with anyone. It can happen with our friends. It can happen with acquaintances. It can happen with the cleaning lady. I, I don't know who it happens to for you, but it happens to me and I'm ashamed of it. I need to think of myself with a much lower esteem and seek unity and camaraderie with others. Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. I'm to be perceptive of the needs of others. And when I see someone is hurting, I'm to weep with them. And when I see when someone is joyful, I'm to rejoice with them. Take genuine interest in others. And let's, I I, want to say this, let's not kid ourselves. The Bible says that human beings, that men and women, boys and girls, human beings are the highest of God's creation. Did you know that? Nothing, nothing in God's creation is more important than people. You have nothing better to do than to love another human being. You have nothing better to do. You have no better place to be. You have no other appointment. There's no show on television. There's nothing else that you need to be doing that is more important than loving other human beings. It starts with your wife, your husband. It starts with your children. It extends to your family, to your friends, to your church, to your neighbors, to your acquaintances, to your enemies. You have nothing better to do than to love human beings. They are the highest of God's creation. And so, friends, let me remind all of us and and myself, our schedules can wait. When when the well-being of another person is on the line, our schedule can wait. Make time. Do you have an appointment in 20 minutes? Call them and tell them you're going to be late. 
You might lose business. You might, uh, you might cause some disharmony with the person you were meeting. But I, I, I would suppose that when you shared with them why you're late, I'd suppose that they may be more understanding than you'd imagine. I'd suppose they might look at you and think, wow, you sure are weird. You sure are different. So you're telling me that you, you're late because you were talking to the cleaning lady? Hmm. It'll baffle them. It'll probably perplex them. But in the end, friends, you're not doing this for show. You're not doing this for accolades. You're doing this because you're making time for another human being. God will honor us for that. And now we finish with a view on our enemies again. Notice verse 17 and 18. Paul writes, Repay no one, repay no one, evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Don't return evil for evil, but have regard for good things in the sight of all men. That word, the word have regard there. Pronoeo in Greek. It means to, to settle in your mind. To think ahead of time. To think carefully ahead of time. How will I respond to this evil? How will I respond to this offense? Paul says, give careful forethought to how you will respond to someone who harms you. Repay no one evil for evil, but think carefully about doing something good that all men and women who see it will go, wow, I can't believe they responded like that. I can't believe that he, that he took that on the cheek and responded in that way. I can't believe that she heard that insult, and yet responded in love and grace. Paul says, do something that is extraordinary when you are harmed. And let, let it be done, let it, let it hold up under the scrutiny of men and women. Make sure that others will consider your reaction to be nothing but loving and admirable. Even look for the good in others. Look for the good in your enemy. As much as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. And of course, you know, there's no, there's no guarantee here. I mean, Paul, Paul is not so uh, naive to suppose that you have the ability um, to be at peace with everyone around you at all times. There, he says, as, long as, it, as, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably. You can't... You don't know what they're going to do. But you know what you're going to do, Paul says. You live peaceably. Some of the greatest uh, advice I've ever, ever been given in my life was from a uh, Christian counselor. And uh, this individual, he said this. I cannot change or control others, but I can control myself. I cannot change or control others, but I can control myself. I, can't, I, I live by this. 
I really do. I, I eat this statement up. This is one of my life statements. And it's a biblical one. Paul is talking about it when he says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably. You can't control what others are going to do. You can't change what others are going to do. You can't even change what your wife is going to do or what your husband's going to do. You can't change what your kids are going to do. But you can control what you're going to do. And I tell you, the moment a spouse learns this, the moment a mom or dad learns this, the moment a, a, a person learns this principle, it changes their life. They realize, okay, I can't control them. I can't control their reactions. I can't control their emotions. I can't control their conduct. But I can control what I do and how I react and what I say and what I do. And if I can control that, then maybe some good will come. And I think of, uh, I think of 1 Peter chapter 3. When Peter says, wives, wives, do you have a husband that, that is antagonistic, that is uh, living in a way that is unbecoming of the Lord? He says, by your quiet, he says, by your quiet submissiveness, win your husband. Peter says those very things in 1 Peter 3. I think it's verse 9. He says, by your quiet conduct, you will win your husband. By your response, you can win them. That goes for wives, that goes for husbands, that goes for parents, that goes for brothers and sisters, friends. It's your conduct that matters. And as your conduct is consistent and is faithful and is true to Christ, as your conduct is becoming of the Lord, you will see, mark my words, you will see change in your spouse. You will see change in your children. You will see change in your relationships when you are always controlling your reactions and your conduct and the words that come out of your mouth. I cannot change or control others, but I can control myself. Verse 19, Paul writes, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if... Uh, actually, we'll stop there. Sorry. We'll stop right there. Verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge. Boy, boy, do we like revenge, don't we? Our sinful flesh craves revenge. But you know what? Revenge is anti-Christian. Christians who take revenge are acting in a manner that is totally and utterly antithetical to Jesus Christ. A person, a Christian who takes revenge is completely opposed to their Lord as they do it. We know this because our Lord didn't take revenge. When he had every reason to do it. First Peter 2, Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. The book of Romans, the book of Romans is so much about the wrath of God. If you read from chapter 1, verse 18, through the next two chapters, all you're going to be reading about is the wrath of God that is coming upon the earth, that is coming upon those who disobey the Lord, that is coming upon those who defy Him. And so Paul says, look, don't take vengeance. Believe you me, it is coming. God will take vengeance. God will hold to account every word, every action, every offense, every sin, every harm that you've received from another. God will hold that to account. For Christians, he'll do it at the Bama Seat Judgment of Christ. For the unbeliever, he'll do it at the Great White Throne Judgment. But he will hold them to account. The day of wrath is coming. The day of judgment is coming. But guess what? It's not your day. You're not the one to give wrath. You're to commit that to the Lord. You're to trust Him to handle those who have harmed you. And He will. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Those who have harmed you, they will answer for it. But guess what? You will also answer for the things that you've done. And so don't be haughty, but be humble. Don't be prideful, but fear God, knowing that you are in the same lot as they. And above all, remember that your enemy, your enemy, the one who has harmed you, maybe even a friend, the one who has harmed you, remember that that person is a creation of Almighty God. He or she is a human being. And while they may have terribly erred, they remain one of God's highest achievements And one of God's highest concerns. And so they should also be one of your highest concerns. So great is to be your concern for those who have even harmed you. That Jesus says, I want you to forgive them. He says, I want you to forgive them. Jesus has some some interesting and, and compelling words in Mark chapter 11. This is what he says. Mark 11. Jesus says, And whenever you stand praying, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. That heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. There's some peculiar things about this verse. Number one, it says whenever, which generally means whenever. And another thing is it says, if you have anything against anyone. And that means, if you have anything against anyone. Anything. Against anyone. Jesus says, forgive him. Forgive him. Notice, there is no mention here of, well, don't they have to say they're sorry? There is no mention here of, well, 
Don't they have to admit they were wrong? No. Jesus' words in Mark 11 pertain to a kind of unconditional forgiveness that Christians are to show other people. While Casey and I uh, were away uh, two weeks ago, uh, we had opportunity to visit my home church in Sevastopol, California, just north of San Francisco by an hour. It's a great church, wonderful pastor, Rich Kundal up there. Uh, he's, uh, um, he's been up there. He was a youth pastor, and I, I had him as a junior hire for, I think, seventh grade, and then he became the lead pastor when I was in eighth grade and has continued at that church for some uh, 20 years or so. As, as lead pastor. He's a good man. And he preached on this, this very verse while we were up there. And, uh, and he made a comment. And by the way, it, it couldn't have been a more perfect text for me at the time. It was, just, it was just so timely. And he made a comment about this text that I will not forget. He said this regarding the, the forgiveness of Mark 11. He said, release the penalty of their offense to God. Release the penalty of their offense to God. See, when we're, when we're harmed, when we're offended, we want, we want to penalize them. We want them to just get on their knees and say how sorry they are, don't we? We want them to realize how wrong that was and we want them to, to be remorseful and to be so sorry, and maybe even to make it up to us, right? We want them to do that. Our flesh wants them to do that. But if we are forgiving, in the spirit of Mark 11, if we are to do this unconditional forgiveness that Jesus speaks of here, then we are to release the penalty of their offense to God. We're to leave it to God. And let him deal with them. But as for you, you are to forgive them. You are to seek their conversion to Christ. You are to seek their conformity to Christ. You are to pray for their salvation. You are to pray for their repentance and for their return to God. Now you might be saying, well, shouldn't I also go through Matthew 18 and go step by step by step and and go myself and then take a brother and then take it before the church and kick him out? Okay, we can talk Matthew 18, but let me tell you something. Don't turn to Matthew 18 and start walking down the Matthew 18 path until you've done this. If you've not forgiven them unconditionally, if you've not released the penalty of that offense to God, then you've got no business walking up to them and, and telling them that they've harmed you. If you've not unconditionally forgiven them in the spirit of Mark 11, then you have no business walking up to them privately and saying, you offended me. Because by that time, you should have already forgiven them. You should already be in a place that says, I want full restoration. I want full harmony now. I want complete wholeness again. We forgive in the spirit of Mark 11 before we seek the spirit of forgiveness in Matthew 18. 
Verse 20, therefore, Paul writes, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I know so many of us would like to think that this coals of fire is, uh, is a metaphor for hell. That we're, we're, we're just saying, ha ha, look at this. Look what you've done. And now I'm being so nice to you. No, that's not what Paul's talking about here. In fact, the roots of, of this, this metaphor probably go back to ancient Egyptian times in which in ancient Egypt, uh, the one who had committed a, a wrongdoing to show their penitence, to show that they were shamed by what they had done and that they wanted to seek correction, they would actually carry on their head, they would walk with on, on their head a, a, a bucket, if you will, uh, or a jar of hot coals. And so they would, they would afflict themselves willingly to demonstrate to the, to the person that they had offended and to their community that they were sorry for what they had done and that they were seeking to turn back and to make things right. And Paul picks up that ancient Egyptian ritual and metaphor and, and, and imposes it into the first century and says, look, as you, as you do good to them, as you respond in love and grace, when they strike you, when you don't strike back, and instead you unconditionally forgive them, and show love to them, it's like you're helping them to understand that they need to be shamed for their conduct. That they need to begin to make that walk of of purification, of getting back into the right. And so, bless them and do not curse them. And as you do that, you'll be heaping coals of fire on their head. Coals that that remind them of the shamefulness of their conduct. And that they need to turn back and make it right. They need to be purified again. They need to be made whole. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't be consumed by evil. George Washington Carver, I mean, he's... He said, boy, I I will never let another man make me hate him. I won't do it because I know that will ruin my life. Don't be overtaken by offenses others have committed toward you. Release them. Don't be overcome by evils. Release them. And you may be surprised how fast you can win over that person who's offended you by simply releasing it now. Uh, In closing, I was... um, I was recently uh, I was I was recently offended by another individual, um, not from this church, and in fact, it's a person I barely know, a person I barely know, and uh, but I was offended by this person, and I'll tell you, my first reaction in in you know in all honesty, my first reaction was to want to take revenge. I wanted to go to this person and I wanted to yell at them. I wanted to sit them down and I wanted to lecture them. And I wanted to tell them just how awful their conduct had been toward me. And I was this close, this close to doing those things. I was this close to exacting the penalty for the offense toward me. 
But the Holy Spirit of God stepped in. And my wife stepped in. And together, the Holy Spirit and my wife calmed me down and reminded me, reminded me of one of my life verses in James chapter 1. Let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. And slowly but surely, I came to grips with the words of Jesus in Mark 11. Slowly, I came to grips with that unconditional forgiveness that I needed to show this individual. And it would, have felt, it would have felt really good to take revenge. Oh, it would have felt good. I have no doubt my flesh would have been very, very gratified. But my spirit would have suffered. And my relationship with Christ would have suffered. Friends, when others harm you, you must forgive them. You must release the penalty of that offense to God. Because you are a Christian. And that means something. You're a Christian. And that means something. That means that when you're reviled, you bless. When you're persecuted, you endure. That means when you're defamed, you entreat. We're Christians. And with the Spirit of God alive in us, we can and will do better. Because it means something to be a son or daughter of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You so much that as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, You have given to us a power that is beyond us. You have given to us an ability that is beyond us. You have given to us a spirit of strength and a spirit of patience and endurance that is beyond us. God, I pray that we would appropriate that power. I pray that we would listen, hearken our ears to the Spirit of God within us that is saying slowly, Go slowly. Don't take such great offense. Slow down. Remember to forgive. Forgive right now. So that your Heavenly Father can forgive you. And be in harmony with you. God, I pray that we would listen to your Spirit within us who is ever reminding us to be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. I pray, Lord, that we would be Christians. That that would mean something. That we would honorably represent Jesus in all we say and do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.